So one of the fascinating award ceremonies that happens every year that maybe you're not aware of is the Darwin Awards. You see, there are the Nobel Prizes, which are these prizes meant to celebrate advances within the human species. There, there are these great accomplishments of thinkers in economics and uh, research and science and physics and biology and chemistry, all of these things meant to celebrate advancement of our species. But then there's something known as the Darwin Awards, which is meant to celebrate the chlorination in the gene pool, those people who is examples that we should never do, these people who, who create these opportunities or commit to these actions that are the anti-example for us. Uh, for example, in 1995, a Darwin Award went to James Burns, who was 34 at the time, who lived in Michigan. And James had noticed while he was driving down the road, his pickup truck had made some funny noises underneath the carriage. And he had an idea. You know, I can only find the noise when my car is driving down the interstate. But because I'm driving the car, it's really difficult to figure out where the noise is coming from. And so James talked to one of his friends, and they devised this clever scheme where James would strap himself to the underbelly of the truck while his friend drove him down the interstate at high speeds so that he could distinguish and find and locate what it was that was rattling underneath his truck. And James didn't make it home that day, as you can imagine. And then in 1995, James got that Darwin Award. The other more recent Darwin Award was given to a mugger in South Africa who had just snatched a purse and had taken off running. But in grabbing the purse, the person he just robbed began to scream really loud, which alerted the police. And so the police turn around, they see the mugger, and they begin to chase him. Well, the mugger, realizing I've got to get away quick, sees a 10-foot wall, scales the 10-foot wall, and leaps over only to find that he just threw himself into a zoo specifically into a tiger cage, and he was captured by the tiger, right? That's what the Darwin Awards celebrate, are people whose actions um, are things that we should learn from so that we never make the same mistake. And in kicking off this series, I thought, you know what? Most of our nativity scenes are full of these, like, beautiful pictures of these um, kind of like characters that we should emulate, the humble shepherds or the wise men or Mary and Joseph or baby. There's this like beauty around the nativity scene. But there is actually more to the Christmas story that happens just in your nativity scene, that there is a glaring anti-example in the Christmas story. Now, he doesn't show up in your nativity scene. You won't find him at any bookstore where you can purchase and stick him in there. But I'm convinced that he actually has just as much to teach us, maybe if not more to teach us, than the humble shepherds or the wise men. And it's in his anti-example of us digging into who he is that I think that we can begin to grab hold and learn from a man who has a lot to teach us about dealing with the darkness within. A man who can teach us about those moments where we try to take control of circumstances and situations and end up introducing more chaos than there was before. Because I don't know about you, but I have a control problem. Now, I masquerade it really, really well, and I label it really, really well as other things, whether it's called being a husband or whether it's called being a parent or a boss. But oftentimes, those things are just facades hiding this desire to control. And what we find in this story, this Christmas story, is this wonderful anti-example for how we can begin to deal with what's happening within and this tendency to try to control 
our circumstances around us. So if you have um, the Encounter Church app, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and it'll already be there, uh, the Bible or the message notes. Um, and if you don't have the Encounter Church app, you can just follow along. I'll be working through it. But what I want to do is tell the story um, that you've probably heard before, but focus in on a character that maybe you've never thought about before, because he's the anti-example that we can glean some wisdom from. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's just stop right there because if this is your first time to church or you're kind of new coming back to church, um, I've just read two verses that were filled with words that made you go, what? Um, Who is King Herod and what in the world's a magi? That sounds like something you would get on a level up on an online video game, right? I mean, that sounds a little strange. And, And then there's this star kind of tucked in there that seems to be this guiding star for them. And what you have is the introduction of the two kind of central characters in the story along with Jesus. You've got Jesus being born, and we kind of, kind of gather from even that first sentence that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem and that some time has passed. And we're introduced to two people. One is that Jesus has been born in the time of King Herod. Matthew was a book written to Jewish readers, and so they would have instantly known who King Herod was because King Herod was infamous. People knew who he was. In fact, his contribution to the Jewish people was that he'd built the most significant monument or building in the Jewish culture at the time. He had built a temple for them, which was a big, big deal. So all the Jews knew of King Herod because the temple at the time was called King Herod's Temple. But they also had a clue about King Herod because King Herod was an incredibly paranoid, controlling individual. King Herod was known for his attempts to gain control of circumstances and manipulate. In fact, uh, the current emperor at the time, who was friends with King Herod, once made a comment that it was better to be King Herod's pigs than it was his sons, because King Herod didn't kill his pigs. King Herod had, had assassinated many sons over the process of the decades of being king because he would get paranoid about one son trying to take over, and so he'd have the son thrown in prison and executed. And so here is a man who's consumed. He's taken out wives. He's taken out sons. He's taken out other family members. He's taken out other officials. He's consumed and controlled by a desire to control. And we find King Herod at the end of his life. He's about 70 years old at this point. He's suffering from a deadly kidney disease, and he won't live another year. And this is the backdrop for this story. And so here's a man who has spent his entire life trying to control his circumstances, specifically his empire, an empire that he was not born into, an empire that he snatched, that he won over and was then gifted by the emperor at the time. That's the man who's the central figure, the anti-example. And he is ruling at the time that magi show up. And here's the thing about magi. Magi may be something you can level up to in an online video game, but magi were actually these uh, ancient Near East wise men. Uh, When you hear about the wise men in the Christmas story, it's referring to these people known as magi. And uh, there's probably more than three wise men or three magi. Um, It's that they bring three gifts, so that's kind of where this, this kind of comes from. But if you've 
ever thought, if you've maybe read this story before, sometimes it's good to kind of process through the story. And you're, so how did these magi even know that there was a star that was about Jesus? So here's something fascinating about the magi, just to give maybe um, if you like history, this will be kind of a 30-second detour that's like, oh, that's helpful. So magi um, originally kind of came to power under King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, and you've got this, this whole kind of Assyrian, you've got a lot of this Babylonians, you've got this whole empire rising up. Well, the Jewish people are captured and taken into exile by them. Well, during that process, a guy named Daniel, who's a prophet, come, is kind of taken in and, and starts to write, becomes an advisor to the king, and that the book of Daniel that we have today in our Old Testament is literally the book that Daniel writes while he's in exile. So when Daniel passes away, the book of Daniel is still in this nation. And 400 years have passed since Daniel passes away. But his books, his writings, Daniel's reputation kind of points to something bigger. And so religious and magi, these kind of advisors study Daniel, even though they don't know if they believe what Daniel believes because they see value in it. And what happens is if you read the book of Daniel, you'll notice that there is this prediction or what we call prophecy that one day this king would come, this like what the Jews would call the Messiah, that he would come. And, and if you trace the math that Daniel lays out, you kind of get this rough approximation of about 400 years. Well, the Magi had been studying the book of Daniel thousands of miles away and recognized that this time frame that Daniel, the great prophet, has predicted has finally come into place. And so because they were also astrologers and they studied the sky constantly, and because some historians believe there was this specific overlaps of some significant stars um, and planets, that what probably happened is that the Magi, whether it was a supernatural event or a natural event, realized that there is now the time for this significant birth event. This, this king, Daniel, promised he's in Jerusalem now. And they do what's very logical, even though what they have done doesn't sound logical, studying a religious text and then selling out and moving, you know, traveling thousands of miles and kind of pursuit. They do what most of us would do when we were looking for a king. They go to the capital, to the palace. And that's what we find here, is Magi have arrived at King Herod's palace because when you're looking for a king, you go to a palace. And when they arrive at the palace, verse 3, it says that, They've arrived there because they've come to worship him. King, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the peoples, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where, where will the Messiah or this promised one, where will he be born? And it says, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So what you see is King Herod, who, because he's not a Jew, has to ask the Jewish leaders and the religious teachers, hey, these Magi have come. They're talking about the Messiah, the promised one. Where is the Bible say that's going to happen? Where's the Old Testament predict? And they said, well, the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so King Herod has got this secret meeting over here with the religious leaders, and then he goes back to the secret meeting over here with the Magi and says, I've found out where he's been born. But all along, you see in verse 3 that King Herod is disturbed. 
and all of Jerusalem with it. And the reason all Jerusalem is, is disturbed with him is not because they are afraid that King Herod may lose his throne. What they're afraid of is what will happen and who will lose their life because King Herod feels threatened. Because King Herod has a control problem. And because King Herod doesn't pay attention to what's happening within him, a lot of it leaks outside of him and destruction and death and chaos is in the result. And so that's why there's this concern. They're like, King Herod, he's dangerous. King Herod, in fact, the year he's dying, this same time period, he's so consumed by making sure that people miss him that he recognizes, I've been such a ruthless leader that when I die, people are not going to care that I'm dead. And so he wrote into his sixth will this plan that when he passed away, the same day he passed away, hundreds, if not at least dozens of Jewish top leaders in the nation were to be all killed the same day so that there would be mass mourning in the nation so at least someone would mourn his passing away. This is how gripped and controlled this guy is. I mean, and so that's why Jerusalem's concerned. But what you see here in the anti-example, and what I want to press into is this first, this first piece of wisdom that we can glean from it. See, King Herod lives his entire life, and he doesn't pay attention to what's happening within him. He's not aware of it. Because he's not aware of it, he's constantly rolling through things. He's pressing through. He doesn't pay attention to what's guiding his decisions. And as a result, King Herod, is, who's been made a king, is now feeling threatened by one born a king. A toddler has threatened the most powerful man in the land. But King Herod is not self-aware enough to pick up on what's going on, on the inside. And here's the first piece of wisdom I want to press into us, that if we're going to be people who start to regain control from our desire to control, is that we have to name what's happening going on inside of us. I don't think King Herod was aware of what was going on in there. I think he, his entire life had been ruled by paranoia, and he never stopped to ask why he was paranoid, what he was so afraid of, what it was that was controlling him and gripping him. Most of us have met individuals, or maybe even in conversations with our kids or spouse or coworkers, where it's obviously it's pride, it's obvious that it's fear, or it's obvious that it's arrogance, and they just won't own it. And you see it. You're like, why won't you admit? Why can't you just say, I'm sorry? Why won't you just say, I was wrong? Or why won't you just own up to your mistake? We have those moments, and I think everybody's watching Herod and saying, why won't you just say you're afraid of a two-year-old? Just name it. But Herod can't just name it. Herod's in control. He's not even letting these people meet these people. He's having this secret meeting over here so that he can control the information and take it over here. And now he's going to control this conversation because he's the only one with the information. He's trying to control everything. And it's all because of fear of a two-year-old. And here's why the naming it, I think, can be really helpful. When you become aware of what's driving you, when you become aware of what's holding the steering wheel, you start to second guess if that's where you want to take the car. 
If it's fear, if it's pride, if it's lust, if it's jealousy, if it's shame, if it's guilt, if it's spite, if it's anxiety, when you recognize that is what's controlling me right now, you're typically, if you're willing to name it, you're less inclined to follow through on it. That, that's this critical first step, is just becoming aware of what's happening in there. And Herod, he lives his entire life being controlled by paranoia, by fear, by arrogance. And he doesn't ever label it. And even the emperor recognized that Herod has a problem and, and jokes about it's better to be his pig than his own son because he doesn't feel threatened by a pig. And I think for us, we can look at King Herod and we can see the, extremity, the extremities of his actions. And, well, I, I'm not a king and I don't rule a palace and I haven't wiped out my entire family because I'm threatened that they're going to take a throne. But I think when we dig past his actions and look at his attitudes, we realize that all of us have a little Herod inside of us. All of us have this little Herod that wants to take control, that, that gets controlled by fear, that gets controlled by anger or jealousy. And in those conversations, we do things to other out of spite because we want to hurt them but we were able to cover it up. Or we find ourselves in parenting situations in, in grocery stores or toy stores, especially this time of year, where our kid somehow is transformed into a brat and everyone notices it. And everybody's looking at you. And you feel that internal temperature rising up and everyone's like, mm-hmm, don't know how to parent. And you're like, you better listen to me right now. And you're trying to like, you don't want anybody to hear it because you want everybody to think you've got this thing under control. I'm controlling this little eight-year-old. I'm controlling this little 10-year-old. And you've lost complete control. And instead of being willing to name what's happening on the inside of you, embarrassment and anger, what do we do? We crush them. We lash out in frustration and we find ourselves parenting or correcting, not out of place of their well-being, of like, okay, I need to lead you out of being this greedy, little self-centered brat. Instead, we're like, you're making me look bad in front of all these people who I don't even know. Right? I mean, we experienced it. We took our little girl to the American Girl store. I should have been prepared for that. I mean, that place is designed to, like, to pick your pocket. And it's like, I need to dress the same way as my baby doll. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't need to wear what the kid's wearing. That costs more than what I buy for you. But it's like this big, big reaction. And what I'm feeling on the inside are all these other people judging me. Bad parent. Doesn't have control of their child. I'm like, no, I'm trying to control my child. And we're like... You will never, ever, I will destroy that baby doll. You know, you're trying to like, but if we don't name it, if we're not willing to deal with what's happening inside of us, what happens is we'll find ourselves being controlled by it. And that's Herod. But it goes beyond that. Here's the good news. I think as you unpack Herod's story, let's jump to um, verse 9, kind of picking up with what he's continued to do. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen where it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were typical gifts that you would give to royalty. And having been warned in their dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So what you have is the story continues. 
they get the command from Herod, they get the information, they're like Bethlehem, and as they begin to set out to Bethlehem, whether it's a natural or supernatural event that kind of triggered this whole journey in the first place, they see it again. When they arrive in Bethlehem, and here's the thing you should know about Bethlehem, Bethlehem's a pretty small village, okay, it's probably a couple hundred people at this time in history, and so when they arrive, it's been about two years since Jesus was born. But when Jesus was born, if you remember in the kind of the first chapter or the early part of the Christmas story, everyone is aware of what happens. Everyone in the village is thinking, what will become of this boy? Because angels show up and shepherds come out of nowhere and there's this big kind of production in the heavens about this little baby that's just been born and the scandal of this woman and this man and, you know, what's up with that? And she said, you know, I'm clean and, you know, and everybody's like talking about it. And there's just this like scandal. There's this awareness in the village. And so when these men show up and they say, hey, we've come to find the special toddler, the special boy who was born king of the Jews, they're like, oh, Jesus, he's over there. And they come in and they find Mary and Joseph and they find Jesus. And it says that they worship it, which is really kind of hard to capture. What it is is that they recognize that they're in the presence of someone significant. And this idea of worship means to give weight and to give kind of this, you recognize the heaviness. And so they come in, and even though these are uh, really prestigious, kind of at the, at the level of delegation ambassadors, like high-level cabinet members of our modern-day governmental structure, they come in and they pay deference to a two-year-old. I mean, can you imagine watching a two-year-old being bowed to by the Secretary of State? And that's what's happening here, is that you have the cabinet-level government leaders bowing down to a two-year-old. And before they go to leave, they catch wind, something's happening, that Herod is, is up to something, and it says that they, they go a different way. And then verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is how we know that Jesus was um, two years old. It's been two years since the Magi saw the star, and so this has been a significant journey that they've stepped into. And when King Herod realizes that his situation he's been trying to control has gone out of control, he overreacts. And he does something that in some ways is unthinkable. He literally goes into the village with his soldiers and he wipes out every single little boy that's two and younger. I mean, think about that. This, this, the king of this nation is so threatened by this two-year-old that he eradicates every two-year-old. Historians believe because of the village and its size that probably what ended up happening was about two dozen um, boys were killed in the course of a night or two. Think, think about that. 24 funerals happening over the course of that next week because of one man's inability to name what's happening on the inside of him. Because oftentimes, we, when we think we're masterminding the situation, when we think we have the situation under control, what really ends up happening is that we're being mastered by it. And what we're trying to control, what we're trying to use to control, is controlling us. I've never met someone who, in the midst of this angry outburst, is under control. 
But I've watched couples, I've watched parents destroy a relationship because they're using anger to try to control. And here's where, while the extreme of King Herod and, and literally the genocide of, I mean, just 24 boys wiped out, when we take away the extreme action and we press into the attitude, we can see the little Herod in us. Because in those moments when we try to control someone, in those moments where we lash out in anger or we manipulate with guilt, what we end up leaving behind is death and destruction. That relationship's damaged. It's not as healthy. I've never met a couple who's come to sit down, process through some relational struggles and said, yeah, I think the real strength of our relationship is for two decades he's controlled me through threats of violence and anger. It's made our relationship stronger. Or, yeah, I mean, she's really helped me by manipulating me for the last seven years. That's really worked well, kind of guilting me, shaming me, and belittling me in front of other people. That's just, woo, we blossomed. No one ever says that. But what happens is when we try to control and we think we've got it under control, that little Herod in us can leave the same wake of death and destruction. I mean, this morning, just because, you know, I'll be personal, um, I'm, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm in a hurry, and I have a four-year-old who moves at the speed of slug, and, um, and I love it. I love that about her. I don't move at the speed of slug. I'm like, I would run everywhere. That's just like my natural, like, I'm like ramped up my RPMs or whatever here, and she's just like, I'm going to stop and smell everything, and I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to love stuff, and, and, and I'm running late, and I'm like, we've got to go. And she's like, I've got to get my baby dolls. And I'm like, we've got to go. Like, we need to come bring the baby dolls. I've got to get them dressed. I've got to feed them. You don't need to feed or dress your baby dolls. Come on. And then she, like, breaks out in tears, and I'm being a bad mother. It's cold, and I haven't dressed them. They haven't been fed. And you're just asking me to take them out there. And I'm like, is this really happening? Like, okay, I don't want to, like, 17 years from now or 25 years from now, she's neglecting a child because of this moment where I'm like, don't feed them, don't dress them. But at the same time, I'm like, we got to get a handle on this. And I mean, at this point, I am feeling anxiety, frustration up to here. And I have this choice. And I'll be honest, I was so frustrated, I forgot that I was even speaking this morning. Okay? All I could feel was this, like, I don't care about those baby dolls. And then feeling guilty for not caring about the baby dolls who haven't been fed or clothed. And I'm like, you just grab a baby doll. But I had to, like, take a step back and breathe and name what I was feeling. I'm glad I forgot that I was speaking on this this morning because it's actually helpful. Because I can tell you, I did it this morning and it works. Here's what I did. I took a breath and I'm watching my little girl weep over being a neglectful mother as a four-year-old. And she is grieving like she truly is being neglectful. And I'm just like, this is tender. Us being late is not her fault. It's my fault. What she's having is a genuine care and compassion moment that's conflicting with my calendar appointments. And I just had to sit there and say, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety and frustration, but it's not her problem, it's mine. And I just need to name what I'm feeling right now, and it's frustration it's anxiety, it's, it's I'm going to be late this morning and it's going to look bad on me. 
And by taking that moment, because I'm pretty sure she was just like, what are you doing, Daddy? I closed my eyes, I took a deep breath, and I named what I was feeling. And here's the beauty. When you're willing to take a deep breath and name it, you can actually start to tame it. That hand grabbing the steering wheel, you say, nope, I'm not, allowed to, I'm not about to let you take control of this circumstance and plow through this sweet, tender personality that God has given my daughter. That that's who she is. That's a gift that he's placed inside of her. And I was going to run right over it because frustration and anxiety wanted to grab hold of that steering wheel and press the gas. And just by giving yourself a moment to breathe and to name it, you can actually start to tame it. And it's this beautiful thing. And King Herod just taken a breath and said, Herod, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid, well, I'm really afraid of losing my throne. What are you afraid of losing your throne to? I'm afraid of losing my throne to a toddler. Oh. I'm afraid of losing my throne to a toddler. That's what I'm afraid of. Do you think that toddler can take your throne today? No. He's probably got 10, 15 years before he can take over. Okay, how how are you feeling right now? Well, I'm dying. I've got like a year left maybe at the most. So is this fear, so what are you really afraid of? I mean, if he'd have just dug in, he'd have probably been like, this is the dumb fear. I'm afraid of a two-year-old. I'm the most powerful man in the land. And I'm making decisions out of my insecurity. And that's where I'm saying that just by naming it, you can start to tame it. Just by being aware of what you feel on the inside is frustration or shame because your employee just called you out and they exposed something that you dropped the ball in and you wanted it to be their fault. When you realize that what you're feeling on the inside is them making you look bad and it has nothing to do with them, it has what you have done, your ball dropped, your, your kind of neglectful choices When you're willing to own it, it doesn't own you. And that's subtle and that's simple, but it is sincerely powerful. And the reason I can say that is because I did it this morning. Because if I hadn't taken that moment to name it, I could have just ran over my daughter in this little moment. And that little Herod in me that may not go out and massacre 24 boys because I'm threatened causes these little micro-deaths in our relationship where comments or snide remarks or choices or decisions takes away from the strength or the health or the vitality of those people around me. But the beauty of Christmas isn't just in the fact that by studying this little story and looking at an anti-example that we can just tame the little Herod in us. The beauty of Christmas is that God has come to transform the little Herod in us. That that little Herod does not have to define us. It does not have to, to, to drive our lives. There are frustration, our anger, our guilt, our shame, our jealousy, our lust, those things that seek to grab hold of the steering wheel don't have to be in control. And that is the story of Christmas, is that God steps in to earth to become one of us so that he can die for us so that we can find freedom. And it's in this profound exchange that he opens a door, not just the taming the little Herod inside of us, but transforming the little Herod inside of us. In 1975, Keith Jarrett shows up in Cologne, 
and uh, he performs what becomes known as the uh, best-selling piano jazz album in history. This is the most successful solo jazz album ever sold, over three million albums. But if you had been there two hours before Keith Jarrett arrived in Cologne, you would have swore it would have never happened. See, Keith Jarrett shows up. He's driven through the night from a previous concert. He's injured his back, and so his back is uh, literally in a brace. He's showed up to this uh, concert, which is going to take place after an opera, so its start time is 10.30 p.m. And when he arrives, this $250,000 piano, this grand concert piano that had been promised to him, is not there. Instead, when he walks in, he finds this practice piano is the only piano backstage. It's severely out of tune. It'll take hours just to tune the piano. To top it off, the high register and the low register of the board is damaged. So it can't play bass, and it can't go into the high register. All he has is the middle. To make it even worse, the keys are sticky, and the pedals do not work. And to get the keys to even play, he sometimes has to stand up and pound the keyboard. So he walks back to the organizer, who happens to be Germany's youngest concert organizer in the day, a 17-year-old girl, who had organized and had arranged for the $250,000 piano to be delivered, and it never got delivered. And Keith Jarrett walks up to her and says, I'm not doing this concert, and she just breaks down and says, you have to do this concert. We've sold out. There are 1,400 people who are here to see you. This is going to ruin me. I'm only 17. And Keith Jarrett looks at her and he says, I want you to remember this day. Because I'm going to walk out on this stage and I'm going to play this piano and I'm going to do it for you. And Keith Jarrett walks out. This practice piano that's out of tune, that's broken with sticky keys, is placed in front of him. And for the next hour and 16 minutes, he plays one of the most beautiful, most compelling, most moving piano jazz pieces ever improvised. He improvises for an hour and 15 minutes on a keyboard that's broken and sticky and struggling. And people who were there and the subsequent people who would buy the album over the years that still considered one of the best albums to ever be produced, if you've never listened to it, you would never know that the entire time this incredibly beautiful piece is being played on a broken piano. And I was listening to that album this week, thinking about this message, and it struck me that that broken piano is a picture of Christmas that Keith Jarrett steps in and with masterful hands takes what's broken and turns it into beauty. And that the story of Christmas is that not that God's just out to help tame what's happening on the inside of us, that he's actually here, he came to help transform what's on the inside, that when we're willing to give our brokenness to him, when we're willing to give our struggles and our frustrations and our anger and our jealousy and our lust and our spite and our just anxiety, when we're willing to entrust that to him, that he takes it from us and he plays something beautiful in the midst of our brokenness, that God is that masterful, 
jazz artist that sits down at that broken piano. And this is what I love about Christmas. It's a reminder to all of us. It does not matter what you've brought in. It does not matter how broken you may feel. God can still do something beautiful in your life. And maybe this week, just Google Keith Jarrett and the Cologne Concert and listen to that album. And hear the beauty that comes out of that broken piano. And when you hear that, that melody that he creates for 12 minutes off of two chords, just two chords, and going back and forth when you hear that, be reminded that we serve a God and that the spirit in the season of Christmas is that God has come, not so that we might tame the brokenness within, but that he might transform the brokenness within and do something far more beautiful than we could ever ask or imagine.